Hello and welcome to another episode of the SERS Group Podcast. I am JC. And I'm Barbara. And today we are talking about remediation. So a few weeks ago, we went to SERS X, which is the annual SERS conference. We listened to a lot of talks. We did two recap episodes, so definitely go check those out if you haven't already. But today we wanted to further explore the talks that were specifically about remediation. Yes. And remediation is the big, scary... I have to sigh just to like think about it. It's the big one. It's the big, probably the main culprit for why people who start the Shoemaker Protocol don't get better is because they have not removed themselves from exposure. And quite often that exposure is mold related or some other fun chemical soup of bad that's happening in your house because of water damage, which can include our friends, the actinos or the endotoxins as well. I don't identify with them as my friends, but you can. <laughs> Actinos is just so cute of a word, but yes, you're right. It's not, they are not friend. They are endotoxins are a little less cute. Yeah. That's yeah. sewage poop. guys. Yeah. <laughs> poop and yeah, that's, that's something that's less, less fun. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, remediation is, I think, um, it's also hard because you don't have this like step-by-step plan necessarily that's like endorsed by Dr. Shoemaker himself the way that you do with the protocol for your body. So that uh, that is also a difficult aspect. And you also have so many remediation professionals out there who are not aware of SIRS and do not clean and or remove mold to the extent that a SERS patient would need it to be removed and fixed. So that is always a danger um, when you're hiring someone as well. So the talks covered all of those problems and more and how to best mitigate those issues. So we're going to dive into uh, as many of the helpful tips that we learned from all the talks. And before we dive in, uh, just a disclaimer that Barbara and I are not medical professionals. We are SERS patients. We run a SERS community. We've read the textbook. We, we're knowledgeable, but none of this should be taken as medical advice. The first talk was the SERS X work plan, and this was by Cindy Edwards. Cindy Edwards, oh my gosh, Cindy Edwards co-wrote Mold Illness, Surviving and Thriving, which is one of the like what is what am I trying to say? It's it's like the book that SERS practitioners recommend to their patients as a way to give themselves context for their illness, both now and like getting better, but also like how to live with it moving forward. Yes. Um, it's something that uh, I know JC and I both read. Lots of really helpful tips there. It can be a little bit on the doom and gloom side, but I know that knowing knowing what someone like Cindy Edwards cares about is she cares about people healing. And so she's going to err on the side of safe rather than not. Um, so yeah, that is a good book. Uh, we can link to it in the show notes if you guys are interested. So this talk was really about Cindy going through a case study of a SERS patient's home where they had attempted remediation and then like halfway through the remediation, they switched contractors or decided to do it themselves. And so it wasn't done correctly. And in the end, Cindy was brought in to come up with this work plan for remediation. And she said the work plan objectives were to eliminate the trauma of remediation failures and then set expectations for the patient. 
I think a lot of times when we're talking about SERS, it feels really overwhelming. It feels like long timelines. It feels really expensive. And so people are constantly looking for where can I cut corners? And remediation is one of the things where you do not want to cut corners. Do it once, do it right, so you never have to do it again. And that's really the theme of this talk. She also um, said that the important things were to be very building specific in the remediation plan. So kind of like Barbara was saying, it's nice with the Shoemaker protocol when you're healing from SERS, it's like step one through step 12. You know, you do each of the steps and then there's gates between the steps to see if you can move on to the next step. There isn't that with remediation. And part of that is because it is so building specific um, the other part is that it needs to be holistic. And then the third part is that it should be sequenced, meaning, you know, each step you should test and then do the next step and then test and then do the next step and then test. And she finds when you do a step and you don't test, that's when you end up having to backtrack because that first step wasn't taken well enough. Yeah. I mean, just think about the all of the effort one might take to remediate where you're blowing out walls and like things are being carried out, thrown away. You think that you've cleaned to what extent you needed to beyond that as well. And then you just cover up those walls and put your house back together. The The crucial moment there is to test before you cover up the walls again, because you want to be absolutely sure that what you just did was actually effective and took care of the problem. Um, and, and, also, of course, rely on multiple tests and, and test different areas and test in different methods as well. Um, it's all, all, all really important and helpful. The other thing I wanted to share was the actual steps of the um, her like quote unquote protocol. And like she says, this isn't going to be true for everyone. It is supposed to be building specific, but I thought it would be helpful if people could have an understanding of what a like holistic remediation plan might look like. Mm. So for her, she says she does a client intake. And so that's understanding both the history of the building and the history of the client, and then getting all of the building specific details. She's very holistic in her approach. So it's, when was it built how long did it take for the building to be built? What kind of climate is that building in? Um, and then the third step is acute remediation of the water damaged sources. Four was seal the cleaning ducts, or sorry, seal the duct system, then clean, test, and isolate, then containment of the building remediation, and then test the remediation, then doing all of the build back work, and then SPC cleaning, which is small particle cleaning. So that means really getting a HEPA vacuum and wet, wet cloth wiping and then dry cloth wiping everything. Um, and then she said, do pre-testing and then do post-clearance testing. And then after the duct and the small particle cleaning, then re-enable the mechanical systems in the home. And then finally, any cleaned content, so any small particle cleaning you did on objects that you would bring back into the home, those would then be reintroduced. My point in sharing all of that is it's a lot of steps. Um, it's a lot of steps, but it is so holistic and so thorough, and it's gate-kept in the sense that you're testing along the way so that you're not going to suddenly have a setback and be like, oh, well, because the duct system was operational while we were remediating, but the duct system wasn't clean. Now we have all of the endotoxins, mycotoxins, and actinos back in our home again. And I think when you're looking at 
kind of this quote unquote protocol as a whole, you can kind of see how it has the same structure as the shoemaker protocol, where it's like you're removing the biotoxins, you're treating the downstream effects. And then finally, you're like reintroducing stuff back in your home. That's when you have that normalization. Right. Yeah. And it's, it always, it hurts to hear all of the steps. Like it just does. And um, because it is, it does need to be so thorough and you do see people who decide, I'm going to put that off. I want to just start the protocol or I want to do something that's, I want to see if I get better without doing that. And maybe that's the direction you choose to go. Um, But I think the reason that people like Cindy exist uh, and are here like beating the drum of no, no, do this the right way, do it carefully, do it thoroughly is so that you don't waste that time and that money on treating things when in fact you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot by not having your environment be clean. Um, and so, and that will look different for, for different people. That may be if you're in the position of just saying, you know what, screw this house, we're selling it and getting out of here or whatever. And we're going to, I'm going to go find a new build. And I know that it was built well, et cetera, which you can only know so much about that, but like they're different there are different paths to take if you feel overwhelmed by that process, but it's still a process that's important. And I think the main takeaway here is just to know how important it really is um, to look at it a little bit closely and to, more closely than uh, your overwhelm wants you to, and to maybe take it just one step at a time uh, and slowly, uh, just like you would the Shoemaker Protocol itself. Yeah. And I think the the only other thing I'll say is like, you deserve to live in a safe space. You deserve to live in a house that isn't trying to kill you. You deserve health. Um, And I think a lot of people maybe don't feel that way, or maybe aren't in a place in their healing where they, they can feel that way and can accept that. But I think if you come at your remediation with that energy of like, I deserve to be well, and you do, um, it makes that whole process a lot easier because then you're looking at all those little details for yourself. The next talk was Next Gen Sequencing More Than Actinobacteria by David Lurk. Um, I don't have much to say about this one other than he did a bunch of testing. If you listen to our um, recap episodes, Barbara kind of positioned this as like, it. this talk raised a lot more questions than it answered. Um, The takeaway really is that they are finding that there's something other than Actinos going on, but they're not quite sure what it is, but it doesn't really matter because Actinos cleaning takes care of it. Yes. And if you're curious, um, these percentages are thrown around quite a bit, but so you may have already heard them, but just in case you haven't, from the the, um, Genie testing, it appears that 42% of people who are suffering with SIRS are actually reacting to actinos specifically, Uh, 28% to endotoxins, 7% to mold, and 23% for other things. So um, I I only state that uh, that's a pretty high percentage for actinos, which means one could justify just going ahead and cleaning. Uh, so, and, and maybe that's the route that you take. And I think that's the route that a lot of practitioners recommend anyway. I think SERS people do in general need a much cleaner environment just to clean more often, I think is just always a good idea for, for all of us. So, uh, if that, if those percentages help 
you understand why and give you a little extra motivation to do the cleaning. Awesome. That's why I said it. You know, what's funny is my, my practitioner was like, all right, you'll do the actinos testing to see if, if you have actinos. Cause my, my hurts me came back fine. And I had a feeling my endo would come back fine, but I did the, she was like, you should do actinos testing. And I was like, okay, if it comes back high, then what do we do? And she's like, then you'll do an actinos cleaning protocol. And like, you'll, you'll use the special soap on your body to get rid of actinos on your body. And I was like, well, why don't I just do that and then do the test? Right. Yeah. Right. Like if, if you're going to make me test, then do the cleaning and then test. Why don't I just do the cleaning and then test? Right. And she was like, you could do that. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I mean, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I, I could see. And I, just because I just met with uh, my practitioner recently and she, her opinion was, you know, we don't want to make you do all the cleaning if you don't need to. And mm-hmm. I get that. I appreciate that. Uh, there are people, I mean, Let's let's put ourselves in the shoes of like the single mother with the like, two jobs, et cetera. Like in that situation, maybe testing, spending the money on a test is is maybe easier and better than just going ahead with the cleaning. Uh, but for us, we work from home. We don't have kids. Uh, it might be a little bit more within our our realm of possibilities to. And also we're further along in the shoemaker protocol. So we're not in the depths of our of our uh, SIRS pain uh, as we were when we first started. So it's definitely decide what's best for you. But I, I agree though, we, you could just clean and test. And that's that's what I'm going to do generally. I am going to get the genie test though, just not for fun, but kind of for fun, but for information. But also um, I think cleaning is just a good, that's just a good practice for anybody to do to keep their home in order. Um, yeah. And the genie test that Barbara is talking about is the genetic test that will kind of show you what you're uh, sensitive to. So it can actually show if you are being specifically sensitive to actinos. So that can help inform your treatment as well. Yes. And that is where the the genie test results, which Dr. Shoemaker reviews all of them specifically himself as of right now um, and, and goes over everything, they are all in a all of the results have been removed from the identity of the patient and have been put into a database as part of his research and that's where those percentages that i just named come from just to circle that all around what close in the loop Nothing. close in the loop circle it all around and close circle the, the wagons guys <laughs> oh man <laughs> uh, the next talk is slaying water damaged dragons. It's a patient experience uh, with water damaged buildings by Chris Foth and Aaron Pettigrew, which I still have not written down. And I will always remember because he is related to Peter Pettigrew in my mind. Yep. The big takeaway from this one for me was like when you do not have a very thorough remediation plan and communication between your provider and your remediator, steps are missed and then you have to backtrack and then you spend more time, you spend more money. It's just that theme of being super thorough at the start. Yep. And I, yeah, I really don't have a ton to add to it. It's like hindsight is 2020 and these guys have lots of that. Um, Just a lot of money down the drain for both of them, as far as mishaps, missteps, um, not coordinating, it's so hard. And I think that there's going, there's a need for project managers or, or um, people of that, with that skill set 
to kind of oversee these whole, the whole picture for patients because SIRS patients often do not have the cognitive abilities to oversee their own whole process, remediation and health. Um, and doctors don't have the time and also would be way too expensive to do all of that. So there's definitely a place in the market for someone who can kind of be that overseeing authority that makes sure all the pieces are moving well together. So that should be something that that we'll see uh, develop more in the SERS community, I think. Yeah, I think last time we talked about Dr. Dorninger kind of coming up with that protocol or plan for remediation. Mm -hmm. And uh, I get his newsletter. And in the newsletter this past week, he shared that they created a nonprofit. And one of the pillars of that nonprofit is coming up with that remediation strategy. So it was really cool to see him kind of like back up what he had said at SERSX pretty immediately. Yeah. The next talk was in pursuit of underlying causes of contaminated buildings by Brandon Apple. And he is a mold inspector. Uh, he he described himself as being a part of mold inspection sciences. Um, I don't know what that means. I know that there's like IEPs, which are the indoor environmental specialists. Um, I don't know if that's a little bit different. And I think that's one of the hard parts with remediation is like, how do you know you're getting someone who is SERS aware or SERS fluent? Um, I know that we have recommended people from the IIC or ISEAI um, mm -hmm. to find an IEP. And you can always have someone who is SERS literate advise a remediation company that's not SERS literate. And I would say the number one thing you can look for is someone who's a remediator who's open to those conversations. If you can find someone, if you can't find a SERS literate person in your area, if you can find someone who's open to having those conversations, I think that's a really good sign that they're going to have best practices or be really open to collaborating with an IEP. Yeah. Yeah. And another organization to look at um, for people uh, who are who may be certified in a way that that makes them SERS literate would be the ACAC.org. Um, so that in addition to the ISEAI, uh, these are really fun to say. Uh, we'll make sure we have links in the show notes, though, for you guys um, to look that up. Uh, but like you said, there, um, finding someone who's open to the conversation is great because there's some of these bigger names in the SERS world, like Michael Schrantz, I know specifically, and I'm I'm sure Brandon Apple probably has some some kind of virtual consultation abilities as well. They can actually meet with you. They can review pictures that you send them, and meet with you over Zoom, uh, and and give you give you suggestions, you know, rabbit holes to go down and why. Like that can be a good first step if you are having trouble finding someone in your area. And then they may even have someone in your area they can refer you to as well. Absolutely. And his talk was really just about how remediation isn't like a one and done. It's very like it, it to me, it almost sounded like it's an investigation. Like they're Sherlock Holmes. They have these clues. Maybe it's like your stacky score comes up really high and it hurts me. It's like, oh, we need to look into that further. And that's what like takes them down these rabbit holes. There's not 
just like one clear indicator of like, oh, you need to remediate. Even with an in this talk, there was a hurts me with the score of four, but the stack he was really high. And it was in Colorado, which is a drier climate. So that means for Stacky to be able to grow, it had to be like a slow leak over a long period of time. And it's that. It's that putting the puzzle pieces together is really what these remediators are doing. It's not just looking at your scores. It's looking at the picture as a whole. Yes. And that bears repeating. That was my big takeaway from the entire weekend is that your score. I know everyone says, oh, you have SIRS? Go get your Hurts Me Too score. Okay, cool. Like, yeah, go test it. Definitely. That is still correct. But you don't just look at that score and go, oh, it's under 10. So I'm okay. You can't, you can't, you shouldn't just do that. You should look at then. And and again, if you, if you don't feel comfortable doing this, that's where you do hire someone uh, like an IEP, like Brandon Apple, Michael Schrantz, uh, these other guys. Uh, to look over your report because they will look at each individual species of mold and the counts, the prevalence of them. Um, they may also know a little bit more about the context. What is, like I live in Las Vegas, what is the natural outside world normally have for mold and how does my home compare to that? That matters too. Not only that, if there is something, like you said, a slow leak, so you have stackies because like they that needs what, like two weeks of wetness before it starts to grow, unlike some of the other species that, that grow faster than that, then we'll start to, then you'll have somebody show up and they have a thermal imaging thing and they can see where water evaporation is happening because that part of the wall is cooler than the rest. I'm getting into the weeds right now, but I'm just, uh, the point is there are so many aspects and ways of investigating and tests and different different things to look at. And you do want to look at multiple. You don't want to just rely on a Hurts Me Too score or just on an ERMI score. It doesn't mean that those are useless. They are still important, but that is like the first step. And you want to get a fuller picture beyond that. And that's where these IEPs come into play. Speaking of IEPs, the next talk was by an OG. It's using peptide bonds and proteins to monitor cleanliness. This was by John Banta. I and love John... that he didn't know what OG meant. Was oh. he the one? Because he <laughs> yeah. was like, OG, what is OG? And someone had to tell him original gangsta. Oh, it's so good. So John Banta so is just like, he's this little old man. And on the first night, he was wearing like a newsboy cap. It was just so cute. It was so cute. I'm in love with him. But yeah, he was talking about this protein testing, which is really cool to help you identify like specific areas where there might be water damage. And so he showed a lot of um, images of the floor plan with the protein tests. And if it was good to go, it was green. If it wasn't good to go, it was orange or red. And by that doing that, they could identify the areas where the water damage was most likely occurring. Yeah. It was a, it's a pretty in-depth test, but like I said, like I just got through saying, it is one of many tools that one can use to identify the problem areas. Um, and there was one person that he, he did a case, he showed quite a few examples of houses that he had tested in this way. And there was one where like the kitchen clearly seemed like a problem. And so the owner was like, screw it, getting rid of that dishwasher, whatever appliance it was that might be causing the issue, totally re redoing that area. And then they cleaned and then the area was perfect. Everything became green just from that. Like, so it was really cool to see how it can pinpoint not just a room that's a problem but like the the specific area of that room the thing in that room that might be causing the problem 
The next talk was Even Holy Water Supports Mold by Michael Schrantz and Bill Weber. And we talked about this in the recap, but basically they went in to examine a nunnery um, for water damage because one of the nuns had SIRS. And the funniest part, and the, this talk was really entertaining. They did it in two parts and it was just entertaining start to finish. They are entertaining people, mm-hmm. but also they, um, when they were doing this inspection, the head nun, who I still don't know what the name of the head nun is, the mother nun? I think they called it head mother. Head which mother sounds, nun. I don't even know if nun is after that. Okay. But the, it should, the head I'm, mama. I'm going to look um, this up. She, she was very careful of her nuns, so she would, like, follow them around. And so in these pictures, they'll be, like, taking photos of water damage, and there's just this little nun in the background looking real angry. Okay, I looked it up. Yes, and that, that was really funny and adorable at the same time. Um, but it's Mother Superior, which they did not say, or Reverend Mother, which may have been what they said. But, yeah, there's some other words. We're clearly not Catholic, JC and I, so sorry. But this was a huge nunnery, like Massive. huge, huge building. And my biggest takeaway from this talk was that when we talk about SARS, we talk about it being multi-system, multi-symptom, meaning SARS impacts different sim- systems in the body causing multi-symptoms. And it's the same with buildings. They're multi-system. You know, you have the HVAC, you have the plumbing, you have the landscaping was even involved in this mm-hmm. this case. You have the lighting and the um, roofing and yeah. the, the wall materials and uh, the, the books and the clothing that's inside. Like there's so many things, so many things. And it's, I have to say it looked, it made remediation look kind of fun. Like as the worker, I'm not talking about the person dealing with the cost of it, of course, but as the, as the professional, it look, it's, a, you're a detective, you are Columbo, but for water. <laughs> and it was fascinating all of the things that they could point out like they were so knowledgeable all of these IAPs are so impressive to me but like they're so knowledgeable about what causes what so when they see something they see uh, uh evaporation so the cooler areas with their thermal imaging scan around a skylight they're like oh the skylight's the problem I mean it seems like duh in retrospect but but they this is clearly all from their experience they know what is going to cause the thing. And so then they do further investigation to confirm their suspicions. And they're always right. It's like, it's great. I mean, it is like watching a Columbo episode, I think. Like with the skylights, I think that was the situation where they went to the outside of the building and the skylights were actually at ground level. So the the room they were in was below ground level, but the skylights were at ground level. And when they went out, they found out that when the landscapers were actually mowing the lawn, they were hitting the structure of the skylight. And so it was deteriorating the skylight. So yes, it was like, I sound excited about remediation because they made it sound really cool. And you can see them like climbing around and they're like on ladders. And I don't know, it seems like kind of like a lot of fun. I feel like I wouldn't do it as a service patient because I'd be exposing myself all the time, but they made it look interesting. Yeah, definitely. I, yeah, it was a, it was as good a time as one can have when you're pointing out horrifically expensive problems to a basically nonprofit organization, uh, which is kind of sad. But uh, but aside from that, it was great that they were able to get that kind of information. You know, they can choose what to do with it. But uh, it was really impressive, the whole talk, both parts. 
I don't remember what the final number was because they kind of assessed and they gave numbers of like the remediation of different areas and they didn't even like tell us all the areas. They, I think they picked out like three or four and they gave the costs for the remediation of those different areas. And it was like $200 million. I don't feel yeah. like I'm exaggerating. Yeah, no, it was, it was a lot. Um, it was a big thing. I want to say it was maybe like they they were guesstimating based on the size of the property. It was going to be about two hundred million. I I want to. Okay, I, no, I feel like it was probably twenty million. Yeah, I think it was twenty. Was what I had in my mind before you said two hundred. Okay, probably twenty. Okay, <laughs> you're like I'm not even exaggerating, guys. It was no, but- three billion dollars. Okay. <laughs> the I mean the point is that I'll like I mean either way I wouldn't be surprised. Like I, I mean I would. So much work needed to be done on those those multi-phased buildings. And it was such a sprawling estate of buildings that I I mean, it would probably be $200 million because you just want to level the damn place. Like it sucks and rebuild. Like it just, it's so awful. It's awful to think about that aspect. But um, but yeah, I mean, we're talking tens of millions of dollars, 100% easily in just the phases we saw. And that was not, even like a third of the property, if that. Yeah, it's a lot. That was a lot. I hope that they're able to at least remediate an area or maybe transfer that nun who was identified as sick. Mm, yeah. And maybe that, maybe, I'm not that anyone should be living in that moldy space, but man, what do you even do? Uh, the next talk was dust mites. So uncontroversial. It's mostly forgotten. And this was by Carl Grimes. He is an another older gentleman. And so therefore I love him. Um, but he was just really excited about dust mites. You guys, it was like, I love when people who are passionate about something talk about that thing Mm -hmm. and they could be talking about like paint drying. And if they're passionate about it, I'll be like, this is the best talk I've ever heard. Yeah. Um, he talked about dust mites for a really long time and some other horrifying types of mites. But the big thing here is that we and by we, I mean, society as a whole recognizes that dust mites are bad, very likely the main cause of asthmatic symptoms. The good news is Actino's cleaning also takes care of dust mites and you don't have to make your bed yes. because dust mites are active when it's dark and humid. Um, and so if you don't make your bed, when you first wake up, you allow that humidity from your, your just bodily ecosystem to evaporate and then go make your bed later in the day Mm -hmm. or not at all this very much goes against um a lot of a lot of advice that i've seen in the self-development space of make your bed clean your room we've all heard these but this is a good reason um and a good reason to clean your uh wash your sheets and replace your sheets often vacuum hepa filter vacuum often all of that fun stuff um I remember thinking, oh, cool. I live in Vegas. So it never gets above, what is it? 40% humidity, I think. 40, is it 40? Um, where where they would, that's when they wake up. But then he was like, but your bed. I was like, dang it. Because <laughs> I sweat a lot. So I know that that's a thing. Um, but yeah, they actually, they they eat and poop and have sex while they're awake. And that's all on you and in your bed and around you. It's it's kind of gross when you think about all of that. But he did also point out that there are things like face mites that exist. So those no. are those are happening. No. All the right now. 
right no. now. <laughs> do you like just don't look that up, guys? Yeah, don't, don't do it. But if you if you have hair on your body, which you do everywhere, they're on every little follicle, even the little peach fuzz he pointed out. I thought I was like, oh well, shaving, but like no, they're even on the little peach fuzz that we all have. Next talk, Historical versus Modern Dust by Greg Weatherman. I think my biggest takeaway from this one was the collection method for getting dust. So we we sometimes talk about in the group, you know, when people are doing Ermes and Hertz Mies, that's the mold testing you do. Uh, we don't want to pull dust that's super old because it's not really representative of what's currently happening in your home. So what some providers do is they recommend dusting, waiting two weeks, and then doing the Ermi Hurts Me testing. But sometimes you can't collect enough dust if you just wait two weeks, depending on, you know, how dusty of an area you live in. Um, and so they recommend taking plastic trash bags because they have the electrostatic charge, so they'll draw dust to them. And if you tape them and you guys, it was a little bit of tea. The remediators were arguing about whether they should be horizontal or vertical. I'm kind of a like the horizontal school of thought. Like that made the most sense to me. Instead of like taping it to your wall, you would tape it to or like put it on a surface that's horizontal three feet above the ground. So you get like that settling dust and not like the floor dust. But if you do it on the wall, you're not going to get as much dust. So that made sense to me. I can be devil's advocate here just for fun, uh, not because I actually believe one way or the other, but the 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 comment that Greg made during this talk or or maybe during the panel afterwards was that he was interested in the actual mold people were breathing. So that's why you would put it up on the wall so that it was more up. It's more the particles that are floating around that you're inhaling as a human in that environment rather than all of the um, the particles that might be just settling on a surface, which maybe aren't going to affect you as much as a SERS patient. I feel like that's like a very, I mean, that's splitting hairs at that point, but I also, um, I, I suppose you would want to continue to test in the same way. If you, if you test one way, continue to test in that way from that point forward. Um, but yeah, that's, that was like the one point that he brought up that I thought, oh, okay, I can kind of see that. I'm I'm have... shrugging right now for anyone listening to the audio. Uh, I mean that was, yeah. It's he mostly we just went into what happened when he did this test and what the findings were and several case studies. I think so. I have a few takeaways and I will um, throw them all out right now. And if you have any comments on them, uh, just little things that I thought were important that I took note of for for whatever for I guess for this purpose right now. Um, when you're looking at your homeowner's insurance policy, rot is often excluded. Um, but you can try hopefully have you hopefully have some coverage on decay. So you want to look for the word decay. And if you don't know if that's in your coverage, you can call your homeowner's insurance people and see what including decay coverage would include would would be like cost-wise. But that would be a way to report and then get covered some of this remediation, uh, some of the remediation efforts. That That's one one tip that I think it was Bill Weber who said that um, in his uh, in, in a panel question and answer. Uh, another thing that the that him and, and Michael Schrantz repeated often was that OSB sucks uh, and that plywood is better. But 
oftentimes OSB is sold as plywood. So you have to be sure that it is actual plywood. So, and that's if you're doing remediation and you're trying to buy, you know, the materials you need to replace what was there, like this would be when that would matter. Or if you're building a new home, make sure they're using actual plywood rather than OSB. Um, let stucco and brick weep. Any stone needs to be able to weep. You want to have uh, holes at the bottom of a wall, let's say, where the any water that condenses on the inside of it can dribble out and not stay on your building or get into places it shouldn't. Um, that was that was interesting. I didn't even think about that. Um, in in the case of the nunnery, someone had actually sealed. I think it was a nunnery. Someone sealed the entire bottom of the wall, and that's where some problems occurred. The water had no place to go, so it went inside. And they saw the holes and they were like, oh, no, this must be where the water is getting in. Yeah. Let's cock that. Uh, yeah. Just so many stupid things on that talk. It was awful. Um, for endotoxins, we don't talk about those very often, but uh, homesteading is a risk factor there, which that was a little surprising to me. But then, of course, when you think about it, it's not. I just I know quite a few people that are going the homesteading direction. They want to get a little off the grid, be more sustainable, grow their own food at home. All good things, right? However, if you have composting, if you have chicken coops, if you um, and even if you have a lot of cats or you let your dogs go out, maybe they walk on their own poop and then they drag it back in. All of these are potential endotoxin sources. So it's just something to be careful of uh, if and when uh, you have lots of animals and homesteading is a practice that you want to uh, explore. Um, one more uh, tip is just to clean, 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 and clean some more. Um, some of the Actinos research that was done saw an improvement after four cleaning sessions of a particular area. And of course you want to continue to clean beyond that. So it's not just four and you're done, but four before you actually make an impact. And then you continue to clean beyond that as well. So those, uh, that was a, uh, an important, that was an important thing for me to hear. So I knew where, the threshold was to actually make a dent and then you know to continue to maintain it beyond that maybe not quite as often but those first four times you want to like really go at it and quickly and then you will be you will be lowering your actino score probably just from that effort alone um, but that was those are my like other little things that i don't quite remember which talk it was that i heard them from but they were important and i wanted to share no thank you i appreciate that i think those are some really key points. And I feel like you can tell which one of us is the homeowner because you're like homeowner's insurance. And if you're a homeowner, this is what you do. And I'm like, I rent. <laughs> it's weird how um, you don't, you don't think that's going to change you. You're just like now paying a mortgage instead of rent. But man, you like, you suddenly pay attention to every little thing because guess whose responsibility it is? Yours. Uh, and awful. Yeah, it's not fun. And homeowner's insurance is notoriously stupid and annoying, uh, especially when it comes to like water damage and mold. You're not going to get the remediate the SERS level remediation that you need covered by insurance. Chances are. Um, so that's why like the wording, if you can get decay coverage, then cool. At least that now you'll have some if you have wood that's clearly rotting away say the word decay instead, and hopefully your insurance can cover something like that. 
And if you are going through remediation, if you have SIRS and you're trying to find or make your space safe for you to live in, you can join us over at the SIRS group. We have resources, support. A lot of us have gone through moving, trying to find a place that is clean or remediation and definitely have a lot of tips and tricks to keep things more manageable and accessible for you. Uh, It's not about cutting corners, but it is about finding the most efficient path to having that safe space for yourself. So you can join us over at thesersgroup.com and we'll see you in the next episode. See you then.